this is Peter Newhan. I'm a first-year MPP. And this is Ben Huber. I'm also a first-year MPP here at McCourt. We're here to talk about Nadim Alshami, who was the previous chief of staff for Nancy Pelosi. And uh, today we talked about um, the ACA, the future Democratic Party, the uh, 2008 financial crisis, and how uncertainty played into all these major events. We had a great discussion with Nadim, and we're happy to share it with you. So, Nadim, thank you for joining us today. Happy um, to do it. Yeah, I'm, I've been having a really exciting uh, discussion groups, and uh, we're excited to sit down with you today. So, GPPR's policy theme this year is uncertainty. Uh, we find ourselves in a time of tremendous uncertainty, uncertainty about our, pu our public institutions, our economic future, and as students of public policy, we're uncertain about the solutions. So you've dealt with uncertainty throughout your career. You've spent more than 20 years on Capitol Hill. You worked your way up from the Senate mailroom <laughs> to become the chief of staff of House Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi. I wonder if there's any specific moments in your career when the uncertainty was overwhelming and how did you combat that uncertainty? How did you manage that? Well, thank you so much for having me on. Um, Yes, I could say that uncertainty pretty much dominated my career on Capitol Hill. And I was actually 25 years, so I am old. Um, Working in the mailroom for almost two years, I wasn't certain I would ever become a staffer. <laughs> when I became a staffer, I was uncertain that I would ever go up, you know, in you the You could office. never have imagined you would have ended up Yeah, there. absolutely, you know. And, you know... Being in a congressional office as a full-time staffer was amazing, but worried about, am I always going to be a staff assistant? Am I ever going to be anything else? And then getting into the press office, wondering if I'd ever go from a press assistant to a press secretary. And then becoming in a communications director in, a, in an office and wondering, hmm, should I try to become a deputy chief of staff? Is that really the role that I want? And then going and, and just moving on to the Senate leadership and then to the Speaker's office and then, the you know, being uncertain about what's going to happen after the election, after we lost the, um, the majority. Um, and then the one thing I was certain of is I would never become chief of staff to Leader Pelosi because <laughs> I really was communications director and a senior advisor and... That was kind of my position I've always wanted to be in. And, and then I was asked what I would be interested in. I really wasn't asked what I would be interested in. You know, we're putting your name forward to be a candidate yeah. for chief of staff. So I'd like you to elaborate on that a little bit. Sure. Because you jumped in to Nancy Pelosi's team right when Obama was coming into power, right when the, the crash was right in the middle of the economic yeah, crash. That's right. And then a year and a half later, Democrats lost the majority. So can you talk about the uncertainty of being, especially sure. on the communication staff, on yeah. the press staff? 100%. It was actually, I, I, it was even a little bit earlier than that. Uh, then Senator Obama was, yes, becoming more of a household name. Um, so I, I began serving uh, in Speaker Pelosi's office when President Bush was still in office, and that was his last two years. And we were dealing with, you know, the economic meltdown of the U.S., of the world, you know, the banking system. When chairman of the Fed says, 
we are not going to have an economy on Monday. Just let those words <laughs> kind of sink in, right? We are not going to have an economy on Monday unless Congress acts. And around the table were Speaker Pelosi, uh, Leader Reid, and leaders of the House and Senate, bipartisan, kind of looking at them and saying, hmm, what? So they all had to go out there and say, we are going to take action to save the economy. And that was something very tough to to, uh, to do. Then you go home and you're uncertain that that was really going to happen. How are we going to reach an agreement? And at the time, I really didn't know Speaker Pelosi that well. I've only been working for her for a few months, right? And, um, you know, she said, we're going to do it. And we did it. And she is a force, a legislative force to, to reckon with. And, um, but President Bush also understood that. And he relied on her. Um, and we were able to, she was able to carve a path forward. How do you come up with a message, though, to the public, to the, the rest of the Democratic Party, yeah. when you have so much uncertainty, when you're in... <laughs> In those tumultuous times. Yeah, we weren't very successful because <laughs> in that particular case, because, you know, while it was a vote of Republicans and Democrats to pass TARP, yeah. and, mm -hmm. you know, and it was seen as a giveaway to big banks, there were a lot, it was all paid back. Let me just be very clear. And this is not <laughs> the talking point. It was all paid back and more. But, um, People saw it as a giveaway to big banks, and that was it. Try to convince the voters that that's not the case. Then you have a party on the other side saying, you know, that's not the case. Um, but we did it, and it passed with bipartisan vote. But I think we paid the price for it two years after President Obama was elected and he was in office. Yeah. That's when we lost the majority. Um, and people knew that was a tough vote. And then when President Obama was elected, um, we increased our majority by a little bit. Right. And we knew we had just a limited amount of time to get healthcare done, Dodd Frank done, and other things. Speaking um, of healthcare, yeah, I wanted to um, just jump in on that. If that's, if that's sure. Right. Um, I'm really curious about how you think the message in healthcare has changed. I mean, how you thought thought of it at the time during the uh, rumps the ACA, and how you think it's changed since then. And um, just kind of how, where the momentum you think on healthcare is now yeah. and what the future might hold on that. Yeah, that was always, it was always hard to come up with a message for healthcare. It was never easy, right? Because you're crafting a big, huge bill. Yeah. We had, you gotta remember, it took a year to get it done. Hundreds of hours of hearings. Mm -hmm. You know, over a hundred Republican amendments. And then you had to deal with the Senate. Um, while the other side was saying, you know... They were attacking you. Yeah, this bill is going to kill grandma. <laughs> right. Right? Death I mean, panels. Exactly. Yeah. It was all untrue. So that's what you were fighting. You were fighting the attacks, right? And you were trying to come up with a bill that is paid for and actually reduces the deficit. But 
the original cost was nine hundred billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, so we tried to move to the when this bill becomes law, you're gonna have a certain number of benefits that you're guaranteed to get. Mm-hmm. It's going to save lives. It's going to lower cost. It is based on the system that we have now. Um, so yeah, it was a messaging war back and forth. You know, it took a while for it all to sink in because when the repeal effort came in, people said, oh, this is Obamacare <laughs> that they want to take away from us. Right. And they shouldn't do that. So I want to add something to, to your question. Um, we know now that there is no longer a penalty for opting out of getting insurance uh, insurance now. Yeah. And there's a lot of suspicion you know, or sus- suspect on, on what that's going to mean for the insurance markets. Is yeah. there going to be a death spiral? Because as we know, insurance companies can't uh, turn away someone for pre-existing conditions. Sure. So what is your thought on that? Will we end up uh, coming back in, in the next Democratic administration and, and having another health care battle? Yeah. Oh, I guarantee the battles are going to continue. Yeah. I think the only way the battles stop is when the American people realize, you know, we have a good system in place. It right. needs to be fixed in certain parts. And when the insurance companies go out there and say, look, the only way for us to continue to offer good health care as people realize that the system yeah needs to get fixed but there is it has the bones in place um death by a thousand cuts to try to repeal ACA um is not something that is worthy of the American people yeah yeah absolutely um but, but but it kind of gets there. If that's if that's the direction it seems to be going, either through executive action or um, if a repeal effort uh, gains steam again, when the Democrats take power, what what is what is sort of to be done at that point? What um where do they go? Yeah. Uh, the power of the purse is really why I got into politics. Mm-hmm. Um, because back in the early 80s <laughs> in 8th grade um, I was in civics class and at the time Mrs. Fields was talking about the power of the purse in Congress and I really didn't power the purse, what, what are you talking about did you walk around <laughs> carrying a purse <laughs> she explained it to me and to the class and I said then I clicked Congress makes the laws and controls the money. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the day that Democrats regain power, they control the money. And even if the other, you know, the, the party may be in control of the White House is a different party, um, controlling the money you know, makes people see things differently yeah. and allows for real bipartisan compromise. So I think that's kind of a long-winded answer of saying that's how you save and strengthen ACA and make the fixes that you need.
Yeah, makes sense. Um, um, okay. So I was thinking, you know, when the when the, when the Democrats take power, like this is sort of uh, something we're all thinking about, and that's certainly where the polls are looking. If not in twenty eighteen, maybe twenty twenty. Um, but so, what what do you think as an institution, the Democratic Party is headed right now? Um, what does it need to change? What does it need to keep the same? Um, how does it appeal to voters uh, after twenty sixteen? Tough question. The future of the Democratic Party is the Democratic Party. And what I mean by that is the Democratic Party's strength is its diversity of thought, diversity of messages, diversity of voters. So let's go with thought. There are those who are extremely progressive. There are those who are Democrats who are more aligned with the business community. There are those who are more aligned with the union. There are many different um, people within the Democratic umbrella. And that's what makes us strong. You know, in order to create a bill, you need to have a bunch of different parts and a bunch of different coalitions to get a bill across the finish line and signed into law. Um, for the Democratic Party to fail is if we are all thinking the same way. In order for the Democratic Party to grow and, and thrive, we need to have the old, the new, um, you know, the young, energetic crowds. You need to have the you know, the senior citizens, you need to have everyone to be comfortable. But to say that in order for the Democratic Party to be successful is to be thinking one way is a guaranteed failure for the Democratic Party. What role does the party leadership play in, in that role? Because Nancy Pelosi, for example, gets a lot of criticism, uh, somewhat unfairly, from the right. But I wonder... Do you think that the Democratic Party needs to take a new turn, needs to renew its messaging in a way? Um, we talked uh, at your last discussion uh, about the need for Democrats to be worried about their base, to make sure that their base comes out and vote. Uh, and this is really playing out right now with uh, you know, the gun rights debate or the gun control debate and the immigration debate. And I'm wondering what role does the Democratic Party leadership play in setting the path for um, the agenda and and whether or not new leadership might be needed to to accommodate some of the concerns that we discovered after the 2016 election. You know, I, I think the messaging, while important, I think being genuine to the voters is much, much more important. So if you're running in a district where you think that these issues that you've mentioned, whether it's immigration or gun safety, are the most important <clears throat> thing to your voters, the voters are going to see you right through you if you're going to sit there and you're going to go through the party's talking points, or you're going to try to dance around the issues. Secondly, 
you have to understand the mood of your district or of the state that you're running in. Um, if you don't, no message is going to save you. Mm -hmm. And finally, you know, the party leadership may provide guidance, but it comes down to the person who is running for office. To take it or not take it, but again, I always say to candidates, voters will see right through you if you're not being truthful with them. Right. You know, um, and then in 2018, the party will decide who should, you know, lead. Um, in 2020, it'll be the same thing. We're going to have an exciting primary mm -hmm. on the Democratic side. We're going to have all kinds. Um, and, you know, I'm kind of looking forward to that. Are you worried about there not being a clear leader or messenger for the Democratic Party? It seems like there are a lot of internal divisions within the Democratic Party that maybe aren't so visible because Republicans are running the government. They're the majority. And I wonder how you think that'll play out in the, in the primary. You know, the divisions within the Democratic Party have long existed. God bless them, because, you know, if we're not fighting on the inside, you know, trying to figure out who we are, that means we're all in agreement. That means the Democratic Party thinks one way and acts one way, and we lost. Mm -hmm. You know, it's always there. You know, the fighting is always there. Questioning the leadership and, you know, whether they did a good job or they gave too much or they didn't get enough. It's just part of our DNA. It's who we are, you know? If we kind of sit back and say, nah, everything's good or just forget it, everything's bad without having those deficients, mm -hmm. you know? And that's how you get... The idea, the idea is that unite the party. You know what I mean? Right. Because everybody is in agreement. Because everybody's fought it out and finally kind of came to a consensus. Look, and there are those going to be on the left or the right who are never going to be satisfied. And you know, that's okay. <laughs> that's fine. Because, you know, again, if we're all satisfied, then we're just boring. Yeah. Um, at the same time, though, you know what Republicans stand for. They're pretty clear about it, right? And like voters always have a solid alternative for what the Republican Party is. Yeah. Do you think that maybe that's a weakness the Democrats have that they can't they can't have that kind of um, consistency? And it seems to me that you know some notable exceptions, uh, the Republicans have been far more successful in my lifetime anyway at pushing their agenda because they have a consistent agenda. And so I wonder if, like, I, I agree these, these battles seem important, but do you think they need to be settled at some point? Do you think that uh, the party needs to craft some sort of um, message or platform uh, that it can really run with in a way that I don't think it has maybe in the last election? 
So Republicans stand for less government, less taxes, right? Yeah, pretty much. Democrats, stand, Democrats stand for what? Cleaner environment, health care, jobs for all, edu stronger education. Well, you know, all the stuff that we care about. Mm -hmm. So maybe Democrats stand for... A government that works for the people. Okay. What, what do you have, you know? <laughs> yeah. It, it's, that's the thing. It's not the was it government or is it, you know, government close cooperation with, you know, the innovators of the future to come up with, you know, it's a lot of things. Again, that's the beauty of the Democratic Party, you know. I know that the Democrats are, you know, in the in the House and the Senate are pushing a better deal. You know, that's a that's a bumper sticker umbrella, <laughs> you know, position, yeah, right? And underneath it, you could fit a lot of things. Again. That's the beauty of the Democratic Party. You know, you see the bumper sticker, the better deal. That's what Democrats are pushing as their message, as their overall arching message. And below it is what you fit under it. You know, but, you know, the sky is blue, right? <laughs> Republicans are going to say, that's why we want to lower taxes and have less government. And they're very good at messaging, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, someone I knew very well, a former boss, I think you guess who she is, <laughs> said, you know, for Democrats, you know, for Republicans, you come in and, you know, they'd see uh, a, you know, glass of water on the table. They'll say, message, glass of water on the table. Democrats will come in and say, oh, glass of water on the table. The table is round. And, you know, the chairs, there are four chairs around the table. Oh, and by the way, there's a glass of water on the table. <laughs> and, you know, so that's, that's you know, and, and um, that's why I love the, Democratic Party mm -hmm. and I have a lot of respect for the Republican Party because of their message discipline <laughs> but the Democratic Party is just because of who we are and there's a constant battle to try to come up with the overarching message which mm -hmm. I think you know President Obama had it we you know Democrats had it in 2005 and six when they ran under the new direction mm -hmm. You know, now it's it's a better deal. So it's it's there, but underneath is what is the policies that Democrats love to talk about. Uh, to finish us off, um, I'm wondering what advice or wisdom you can depart on students of public policy um, who are interested in going into public service, whether it's communications or maybe even running for office. Now is your time. Do it. You absolutely have to do it. You're the next generation. Um, whether it's behind the scenes, whether it's running for office, we need uh, new thinking on both sides. And independence. We just we just need this new generation of you know leaders to come up and, and say, you know, we've seen how things were done in the past. We're gonna come in and we're gonna 
participate, but we're going to do them better. Yeah. Um, so participate and do it as quickly as possible, please. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the GPPR podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. For more content from the Georgetown Public Policy Review, check out our website at www.gppreview.com, our Twitter at GP Policy Review, or our Facebook, GPP Review. Thank you.